Chapter 14 of Ashton Kirk, Investigator by John Thomas McIntyre This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pete Milan. Chapter 14 Miss Vale Unexpectedly Appears Edward, Ashton Kirk's cook, was astonished and somewhat grieved that day to receive orders that dinner was to be served an hour earlier than usual. And Stumpf, grave and immobile, was betrayed into an expression of astonishment when his master and guest sat down to the same dinner in their workaday attire. And at best, Edward's delicate art that day received but scant attention. Stumpf could hardly conceive of a more important thing than the proper and gentlemanly eating of one's dinner. Nevertheless, other things engaged the attention of the two young men. They talked earnestly and in incomprehensible terms. Mysterious allusions were sprinkled thickly through it all. "'I do not think,' Stumpf told the mortified Edouard in the kitchen, that Mr. Pendleton has tasted the flavor of a single thing he has eaten. He listens to Mr. Ashton Kirk talk. He is surprised at everything that he has told. There's a trembling in his hands he is so eager. No, I don't know what it's about. But then, I never know what Mr. Ashton Kirk is about. He is a very remarkable gentleman. And no sooner was the dinner completed, then Ashton Kirk's big French car was brought to the door, and both young men got into it. "'You've looked up the road to Cordova?' inquired Ashton Kirk of the chauffeur. "'Yes, sir,' answered the man. "'Very good road, and almost parallel with the railroad. No trouble getting there by dark.' "'All right. Get there as soon as you can.' They cut into a broad asphalted avenue, which eventually led them through the north suburbs into the country. The April dusk was settling upon the fields as they raced along. In the isolated houses, lights were beginning to twinkle. There was a swaying among the trees and roadside bush. The hum of the flying car must have been borne long distances, for far away, people raised their heads from the finishing tasks of the day to look at it as it flashed by. Pendleton lay back comfortably, digesting his dinner, and ticking off in his mind the case which engrossed him so much. "'It all tapers down to this,' he said to himself. "'Hume was murdered by Locke and a confederate in order that they might gain possession of something, the nature of which is unknown.' Kirk is confident of Locke. I think he'd even go so far as to give him into custody if he had the tangible proofs that the police require. But he lacks enthusiasm in the matter of the Confederate. To my mind, it's Spatola or Morris. Or both. Both bore Hume no goodwill. Morris has been spending at least part of his time with Spatola under an assumed name. They are known to have been very much engaged in some secret matter. Both visited Humes on the night of the murder. An Italian purchased the weapon with which the deed was done. 
a German sentence was written in shorthand by Locke for his confederate. Spatola admits he knows German. He grows suspicious when shorthand is mentioned. And to wind it up, Morris has not been seen at his apartments, his office, or by his friends since the murder was committed. At a little unpainted railroad station, the investigator broke in on Pendleton's thoughts by calling on the chauffeur to stop. There were the usual signboards on each side of the structure, announcing that the place was Cordova, and there was the usual knot of loungers that are always to be found about such places, watching with interest the incoming trains. Ashton Kirk called to one of these. He was a lanky fellow in a wide-brimmed hat and with a sheep-like look of complacency. "'What's the best way to Dr. Mercer's place?' asked Ashton Kirk. The lanky man reflected. "'There's three or four ways of getting there,' he stated. "'You can go up the pike and turn at Harbison's store, or you can turn down the lane along there a piece and go along until you come to—' "'Which is the nearest?' I ain't never passed no judgment on that. But I think the clay road down toward Platteville would get you there the quickest. If you didn't get stuck in the ruts. I think we'd better stick to the pike, suggested Pendleton. Pike's the best road, said the lanky man. All the people from Mercer's place use it when they drive here to the station. Once more. The big French car, now with its lamps lighted, sped along the road. About a mile further on, they came to the store, referred to by the man, as Harbison's. Here, they received instructions as to how to proceed, by the storekeeper. And after running about four miles along an indifferent wagon road, they caught the twinkle of many lights off in the middle of a wide clearing. That must be it said the investigator. We'll leave the car here, to flash up to the door in the quiet of the evening would attract more attention than would be good for us, perhaps. It was now quite dark, but they found a gate a trifle farther on which opened readily. And so they proceeded along a walk toward a building which lay blinking at them with its yellow eyes. A deep-throated dog scented them from off in the distance, and gave tongue. As they drew near to the institution, they heard a man calling to the brute to be still. A little further on, the man himself suddenly appeared from around the corner of a building with a lantern. He flashed this in their faces as he said, Well, sirs, this is against the rules. We have no visitors except on Saturdays, and then only within reasonable hours. We would like to speak to Dr. Mercer, said Ashton Kirk. Dr. Mercer is at dinner, explained the man with the lantern. He don't like it much if he's disturbed at such times. We will wait until he has finished. We are in no great hurry. The man seemed puzzled as to how to act. With the light held aloft so that not a feature escaped him, he examined them closely. Apparently he could see nothing with which to find fault, and so he sighed in a perplexed fashion. "'He does not care to have people wait for him,' complained the man. "'He gets very angry if he is worried by such things while dining.' "'You need not announce us until he is through,' 
said Ashton-Kirk, composedly. The man hesitated, but finally resolved upon a course, and led them up a flight of stone steps and into a wide hall. The night was raw, and a brisk fire of pine knots burning in an old-fashioned hall fireplace made the place very comfortable. "'If you will be seated, gentlemen,' requested their guide, "'I will tell Dr. Mercer of your presence as soon as he has finished.' They seated themselves obligingly in a couple of low, heavy chairs near the fire, and then the man left them. The hall was high and rather bare. The hardwood floor shone brilliantly under the lights, save for the faint murmur of voices from a nearby room. Everything was still. "'I should imagine that a place of this sort wouldn't be at all noisy,' observed Pendleton, in a heavy attempt at jocularity. Except for a word now and then, they waited in silence for a half-hour. Then a door opened, and steps were heard in the hall. Both turned and saw a remarkably small man, perhaps well under five feet, dressed with great care and walking with a quick, nervous step. His head was very large and partly bald, rearing above his small frame like a great bare dome. He carried a silk hat in his hand and peered abstractedly through glasses of remarkable thickness. "'Locke!' breathed Pendleton as his heart paused for a moment, and then went on with a leap. The little man apparently did not see them until he was almost beside them. Then he paused with a start, and his eyes grew owlish behind the magnifying lenses as he strove to make them out. That he did not recognize them seemed to worry him. His thin, gray face seemed to grow grayer and thinner. With a diffident little bow, he passed on and out, at the front door. "'Not a very formidable-looking criminal,' commented Ashton Kirk quietly. "'However, you can seldom judge by appearances. The most astonishing crime that ever came to my notice was perpetrated by the meekest and most conventional man I had ever seen.' They waited for still another space, and then the man who had shown them in presented himself. He was now without the lantern but wore a melancholy look. "'Dr. Mercer will see you,' said he in a low voice. "'He is very much vexed at being disturbed. He'll remember it against me for weeks.' He appeared very much disturbed. Ashton Kirk placed a coin in the speaker's hand. This seemed to have a bracing effect, for he led them into his employer's presence in a brighter frame of mind. Dr. Mercer was seated at the table in his dining-room. A napkin was tucked into his collar. His fat hands were folded across his stomach, and he was breathing heavily. "'Gentlemen,' spoke he, rolling his eyes around to them, "'I trust you will pardon my not rising, but to exert myself after dining has a most injurious result sometimes. My digestion is painfully impaired.' The slightest excitement causes me the utmost suffering. "'I appreciate the fact that we are intruding at a most inconvenient time,' said Ashton Kirk, "'and I beg of you to accept our apologies.' The eyes of Dr. Mercer, which had the appearance of swimming in fat, 
were removed from his visitors and fixed themselves longingly upon a great dish filled with a steaming, heavy-looking pudding. His breath labored in his chest as he replied, The hour is somewhat unusual, but as it happens I have about finished my dinner, and if your errand is not of a stirring nature, I should be pleased to have you state it. The man placed chairs in such a position that the doctor would not have to stir to fully observe his visitors. This done, he was about to withdraw, but his employer stopped him at the door. "'Haynes!' complained he. "'You have not taken my order for breakfast.' The man paused and seemed much abashed at his neglect. "'I really beg your pardon, sir,' said he. And with that he produced a pencil and a small book, and stood ready. "'I will have one of those trout that I purchased today,' directed the doctor. "'Let it be that large, fine one that I was so pleased with.' His swimming eyes ready to float out of his head with anticipation. "'Then I would like some new laid eggs, some hot cakes.' and perhaps a small piece of steak, if there is any that is tender and tasty. And mind you, in a nervous afterthought, tell Mrs. Crane to have it but rarely done. I will not tolerate it dry and without flavor. He pondered a while, apparently much moved by this painful possibility. Then he added, I may as well have a cereal to begin with, I suppose. And that will be all, with the exception of a few slices from the cold roast, and some white rolls. Carefully, Haynes had taken this down, and after he had read it over at his employer's order, and noted a few alterations and additions, he departed. For a few moments the doctor's eyes were closed in expectant rapture. His breathing grew so stertorous that his callers were becoming alarmed but he spoke at last, reluctantly, resentfully. "'I am now ready to hear you, gentlemen, if you please, and kindly remember that I prohibit anything of an exciting nature at this time.' "'We have heard your school highly spoken of,' said Ashton Kirk, "'and have come to make some inquiries before making up our minds.' "'Ah!' breathed Dr. Mercer, solemnly. "'You have an afflicted one. Too bad. Too bad.' "'There are many institutions of the sort,' proceeded the investigator, "'but for the most part they stop at the threshold, so to speak, of knowledge.' Dr. Mercer roused himself so far as to unclasp his hands and point with one finger at the speaker. "'Sir,' said he, in a voice full of grave significance, "'they seldom reach the threshold. "'A large majority of them are conducted by dishonest persons. "'Afflicted youth left in their charge are rarely properly directed. "'They rarely acquire that digital dexterity "'so necessary to success in their limited lives. "'The isolated brain, so to call it, is seldom more than half awakened. Unless it is intelligently approached, the shadows are never thoroughly dispelled. 
Here he paused, panting distressedly. His eyes were filled with reproach as he relapsed into his first attitude. And his manner was that of one who mutely begged that no further tasks be thrust upon him. The difference in institutions of this type lies mainly in the methods employed, I believe, said Ashton Kirk. In the methods, and in the persons who apply them, replied Dr. Mercer, in a smothered tone. To be sure I have heard something of your teaching staff. It is a very excellent one, is it not? The best in the world! The soft, fat, white hands of the doctor again unclasped themselves. And this time both of them were employed in a faintly traced gesture. We employ scientists. We do not stop at what you have correctly called the threshold. We explore the entire structure of the intellect. Our Professor Locke, himself an afflicted one, is a man of vast erudition, a scholar of an advanced type, a philosopher whose adventures in the field of psychology and natural science is widely known. He has charge of the practical work of the Mercer Institute, and under him its results are positive and unique. We have heard of Professor Locke, and, dryly, have seen some of his work. If you had stated your business before uh, coming in to me, spoke the doctor, you might have had an opportunity of consulting him. He left for his cottage immediately after dining. He does not live here, then? Not in this building, no. There is a detached cottage at the far end of the grounds which he occupies. If you'd like to see him, and the heavy jowls of the speaker trembled with eagerness, Haynes will show you that once. If it is no trouble, said Ashton Kirk smoothly. Not in the least. The doctor rang for his man, and when he entered, said, These men would like to speak to Professor Locke. Show them the way to his house. And gentlemen, to the callers, with anxiety, the professor can arrange everything with you. It is my habit to nod for a half-hour after dinner. My system has grown to expect it, and if I am deprived of it, I suffer considerably in consequence. We will not trouble you again, doctor, Ashton Kirk assured him. Thank you, and good night. Once more outside, the man led them along a footpath that seemed to cut the institution grounds in two. The rays of his lantern danced along the carefully kept lawn. The shadowy trees seemed to move backward and forward as the thin beams wavered among them. Professor lives a good piece away, the man informed them, away over on the county road. Prefers to be alone, eh? I suppose so, sir. And then he has his laboratory and workshop there, well away from interruption. He don't like to be much disturbed while he is engaged in his studies. Few of us do, said Pendleton. Quite right, sir. They walked along in silence for a time. Then they caught a clear humming noise from some distance ahead. A motor car, said Pendleton. It's on the county road, said the man with the light. We always hear them when the wind blows from that direction. 
After some fifteen minutes steady walking, they saw a long, twinkling shaft of light coming from among the trees. "'That's the house,' said Haines. "'I hope the professor ain't busy. You wouldn't believe what a blowing up he can give a body with his fingers when he's vexed. I'd almost rather have the doctor himself, though as a rule the professor is a very nice gentleman.' The house was a brick structure of two stories, and dimly lighted on the lower floor. Nearby was a long, shed-like building, the windows of which were brilliantly lighted. "'He's at work,' said Haynes, in a troubled tone. "'And in the shop, too. If it was even the laboratory, it wouldn't be so bad. But he does get so interested in the shop. That machine means more to him, whatever it is, than anything else about the place.' There came a harsh burring sound from within both the shop and the house. Haines seemed surprised. "'Visitors,' he said. "'He seldom has one, and I never knew any to come at night before.' They saw the figure of Locke cross one of the shed windows toward a door. And just then Ashton Kirk stumbled rather heavily against Haines. The lantern dropped to the ground and was extinguished. "'I beg your pardon,' said the investigator in a rueful tone. Then he began to rub his shins. That was rather hard, whatever it was. The door of the building opened, and Locke appeared. His great bald head shone in the light that streamed after him, and it was thrust forward as he strove to penetrate the darkness ahead. "'He feels the vibrations of those buzzers,' Haines told them and knows right away when anyone wants to get in. He began fumbling with the lantern as Locke disappeared, but Ashton Kirk said to him, You need not light that. We can see very well. And, on second thought, you need not wait, either. We can introduce ourselves to Professor Locke without troubling you further. Thank you, sir, said the man, vastly relieved. They all have queer dispositions, you see, and I don't like to trouble them. At once, Haines made his way back along the path by which they had approached. Some distance away, they saw him kindle his lantern, and then watched the yellow spark as it glanced fitfully away across the grounds. The cottage and workshop of Professor Locke appeared to be set back some little distance from what Haines had called the county road. A grove of tall trees thickened the shadows all about, and it was into these trees that the professor had gone. "'The buzzer must have the button that sounds it attached to a gate opening upon the road,' said Pendleton. They stood for a short time in silence. Then Pendleton nudged his friend with an elbow. "'Look,' he whispered, "'there at the door of the shed.' Ashton Kirk did so, and he was just in time to see a large iron-gray head a craggy, powerful face, and a pair of thick shoulders. The expression and attitude were those of a man listening intently. Almost instantly, as Ashton Kirk's gaze fell upon him, the man withdrew. Huh! exclaimed Pendleton under his breath. Who's that, I wonder? They waited for some time longer in silence, but the little man did not return nor did the head appear again at the shop door. Ashton Kirk appeared puzzled. 
Locke intended returning at once, he said to Pendleton. Otherwise he would have closed his workshop door. Then his eyes wandered toward the house, and his grip closed tightly upon his companion's arm. Look, whispered he in his turn. Pendleton's gaze flew toward the house. The lower windows had been dimly lighted when they approached, but now the glow from them was high and brilliant. In one of the rooms they saw Locke. He was striding up and down, his hands clinched and gesturing, his face upturned, writhing hideously. Seated at a table, calmly engaged in examining something traced upon a sheet of paper, and apparently not paying the slightest attention to the gesticulating man, was a young woman. And Pendleton felt himself grow suddenly faint and sick as he recognized Edith Vale. End of chapter 14